Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 2. We are reading verses 1 through 18. Listen carefully to God's word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the, than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who, sacrifices, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Almighty God, we come to your word this morning and we are dependent upon you. It is by your spirit that we have knowledge and understanding of all that you have revealed. And so will you teach us this morning, Holy Spirit, and will you guide us into all the truth that has been given through the Son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. In her first novel, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor created one of her most epic, grotesque, and cartoonish characters that you can imagine. Recently, one member of our congregation took up Wise Blood at my recommendation and came back puzzled. Why did you tell me to read this book? It's so strange. And the character's name is Hazel Motes, and it is extremely strange, and especially if you don't understand the way that Flannery O'Connor tends to write. She speaks through bombast and grotesque characters in a way to make a point. But Hazel Motes returned from World War II and he felt destined to become a preacher. 
The only hitch was is that Hazel Motes didn't believe in Jesus. And so he founded his own church. It was known as the Church Without Christ. He gathered at the street corner and began preaching. There was somewhat of a following even around Hazel Motes. Some other competitors entered into the scene who became the Holy Church Without Christ. And there were also some real preachers in real Christian churches who are set alongside of Hazel Motes in the novel. And they are compromised figures as well. The point is that it's all an elaborate parody about how the church drifts away from its central core affirmation. That is our belief in Jesus Christ. That what often happens in the church's life is that Jesus gets displaced. That he loses his central place. And that's what we find in the book of Hebrews. We find a congregation. They receive here something of an extended sermon, most likely. 13 chapters long. We don't know the exact preacher. We don't even know the exact audience. We just know that they had deep Jewish roots. But they were drifting away from what they had first heard, from what they had first believed. They were moving into other forms of belief. They weren't necessarily leaving Jesus completely behind, but they were exalting other things. Jesus was losing his central place. It was a retreat into a compromised form of Christianity. They were suppressing the significance of Jesus, and in so doing, they were actually supplanting him. And this happened then and there in an unknown congregation that this sermon was preached to, but this same dynamic happens here and now today, that it continues, that we have churches without Christ. Christ has not completely forgotten. He's not completely thrown out, but he does get marginalized in certain ways. He's relegated to a lower place than which God assigns him. He often gets relegated through things like good morals, he gets relegated through things like social justice activities. He gets relegated through things like religious experiences. These are all things commended by the Bible. Please pay close attention to that. But these things become elevated above Jesus himself, and they lose then their proper place. And Jesus doesn't take the central role of affirmation and faith in the church's life. And friends, this is what drift looks like. It's a shift away. However slight or however slow, it's a shift away from the centrality of Jesus Christ. And in order to arrest the drift, we discover this in verse 1. Follow with me in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That this is the means for arresting the drift for awakening those who are being lulled off to sleep to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And so the simple question for us this morning that we'll work through in short order is that in close listening, what do we hear? What is this proclamation that has come from God through Jesus Christ? What do we hear? And there's one very clear resounding message that you find in chapter 2 in verses 5 through 9, which we can never tire of, which we can never grow weary of. And that message is this, that Jesus Christ is the heir of the entire world. Follow with me in verse 5. 
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. If you'll remember last week, we spoke that the angels were being exalted. They were the ones who delivered the law. And so they were displacing Jesus in this congregation. Angels and other figures and the law of Moses were being, being given a more prominent position than Jesus. And so in the sermon, the preacher then turns and says, no, no, no. Please remember that the world to come has not been subjected to angels. The world to come has not been subjected to the law. The world to come has been subjected to Jesus Christ. He then makes an elaborate quotation of Psalm 8. And Psalm 8, the context of that is important to understand. It is a psalm that's well known. It asks the question, what is man that you take regard for him? And then the answer is given. That man is not some tiny speck of dust Know that man has been crowned with glory and honor and all things have been subjected to man. It's a dignified position that God gives to his images, that God gives to human beings. But of course, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that we forsook that high calling. That while we are still in the image of God, we turned from God and we chose our own path, that we rebelled against him. And what's being stated here in Hebrews 2 is that God is doing something to remedy that situation. That God is fixing our rebellion. That there is another man who has come. And he comes in the likeness of Adam. That is to be a representative of all. And it is Jesus. That this is the man who comes and is crowned with glory and honor. And all things have been subjected to him. That he lives a life that was free from compromise. That he resisted temptation. That he willingly suffered. And that as he died... As he's buried in the grave, he was the one righteous man. And so God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand. And it's for these reasons that Jesus is the heir of all things. He is what we were intended to be. He is true man and true God, but he is the true and faithful man. And he leads us as the pioneer or what the... The sermon says, translated for us, the founder of our salvation. That he goes before us in order to blaze the trail. And he establishes it secure. He died in order to reconcile everything to God. If you follow with me in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that... By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There's one important point to make about this last word, everyone. Scholars, commentators are equally divided about the best way to translate it. It could be everyone or everything. Because of the context of what's happening in this passage, I prefer everything. So that Jesus might taste death for everything. That's why he came into the world, the one righteous man who resists temptation, who turns away, who stays faithful to God, who goes down on the cross on our behalf so that he might taste death for everything. Because please remember that when Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't simply give us fire insurance for life with God in the hereafter. That Jesus' intent in coming and dying on the cross is that he might reconcile all of the world to God. That is that all of creation and all those who believe in him would be reconciled to God to inherit a world to come, a creation that's freed from the stain of sin. And so what we have happening here 
in these first verses of Hebrews 2 is that drift away from Jesus is being arrested by a much grander and bigger view of Jesus. And it is so often the case that people drift away from Jesus because they have an anemic view of him. That we never fully appreciate everything that the Bible is saying. And so in our sermon here in chapter 2, we have this arresting vision of Jesus, the ruler of all things. The heir of the world to come. Everything is in subjection to him. And everything finally one day when he returns will be brought in subjection to him. He did this to restore us to what was lost. And we are heirs of all of that through faith in him. And that's the point of the sermon, is to make this glorious grand picture of Jesus, to place that before us, to appreciate who he is. But it's not only that the sermon is concerned here with the future. We've spoken of the heir of all things, and that that will be the case in the future, and that we will share with him in resurrected bodies in a physical creation where we're In relationship with God, we're free from the stain of sin. But it's not simply that we have a future inheritance. As you turn into verse 10, you find that there are also present realities, present benefits that anchor us from this drift that can happen. And there's three in particular that I draw your attention to here. The first is that Jesus sets us apart or sanctifies us for God. If you follow with me in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Now, the word sanctify is probably familiar to many people who have read a letter, an epistle of Paul. And sanctification in the epistles of Paul normally speaks of the process by which we experience change. That is in which God transforms us. But in the letter to the Hebrews, it's used slightly different. It's used in a way which speaks of a one-time event that has an ongoing consequence. Okay, If you turn to chapter 10 in verse 10, you will see this. It becomes clear. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so he's speaking of something definitively that's happened through the death of Jesus Christ. We have been sanctified. And so sometimes it's difficult for people to pick up that language because they view sanctification as an ongoing process. But what does the writer to the Hebrews say here? You have been sanctified. This has happened to you if you have faith in Jesus. And so you have been set apart. But there is this dynamic that from that definitive thing that's happened in Jesus Christ, you are also now continuing in that. Perhaps the best way to understand it is that on May 13th, the year 2000, this is nearly 20 years ago, I was wed to my bride, Melissa Timms. And the preacher stood up that day, and he announced that we were now husband and wife. Now, when I look back, I have great shame at how poor of a husband I was. When I look at my lack of understanding of that role at that point, Despite reading on it, despite studying it, when I really look at the fact of how I executed it, it's somewhat shameful. But guess what? Did that make me not a husband? No. I had been declared a husband by the minister there. In the sight of God, I was declared to be something. I am a husband, therefore be a husband. 
was the implication. And friends, that's the way the word sanctification works here in the book of Hebrews. That you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You have been set apart. You've been consecrated to God. Therefore, be consecrated to God. Live into that reality that he has given you. This is the dynamic that is established for the Christian. But please note that that dynamic is sustained by one remarkable statement. If you look in the second half of verse 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This was one of the most breathtaking verses this week for me personally in studying Hebrews chapter 2. The statement that Jesus is not ashamed to call me a brother. The statement that Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. That this is what sustains the dynamic that Jesus has consecrated us in his once for all offering of himself on the cross. That he has taken our sins and he has destroyed all the condemnation of those sins and he has freed us from them. And friends, we need to hear that today. That Jesus, he is not ashamed of you. No matter how you feel, no matter how far you may feel, he says this morning that he's not ashamed of you. That as you look to him in faith, that he handles your sins. Your sins are not too big for him. They are not too complicated. It's not anything that he can't understand, but it is something that he can handle through his death on the cross. He is not ashamed of you. Now, the second present benefit that we find is that Jesus frees us from fear. If you follow with me in verse 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And it is true for us in our mortal condition, in our fallen frames, that death is something that hangs out in front of us with fear. And there is a fear of death that can occupy all human beings. And it is interesting that living in that fear, it can create all kinds of different neurosis. There are many different modern books that have been written about this in existential psychology, about how the fear of death drives modern people. And because we need to develop a way to cope with it. And so in many ways, we ignore it. We act, we act as if it doesn't exist. We pretend that it's something that we don't really care about. But the bottom line is that when we pretend that death doesn't exist, the fear of death has us in its strongest grasp. And something very straightforward is being said here in the gospel. That death, that reality that marks each of us, it's a one-to-one, hundred percent across this tent. That death holds no power over you. And why is that? Is that by his own death, Jesus Christ has destroyed the power of death. He has brought it to ruin. That yes, we step into death just as Jesus, the pioneer and founder of our salvation has. But then his promise is that we will share in his resurrection. And that is the great future hope. And so now in the present, in the day today, we're not driven by the fear of death. That the fear of death does not drive us to either cynicism or it doesn't drive us into just mere materialism. That we actually know that there's something greater to live for. And we're not concerned 
Because even in our demise, the great victory of Jesus, because he is not ashamed to call us brother, because he is not ashamed to call us sister, we belong to him. He has done this for us. And the final benefit that we see here, though, is that this great Jesus, who is the heir of all things, he's also tender because he helps us in our weakness. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This great ruler of the world is not indifferent towards you is what is being said because Jesus has shared in flesh and blood. And please keep that affirmation strong that Jesus is fully man and he is fully God. But as fully man, he fully and completely identifies with you. He understands the sinful temptations that you face and that you endure. He's not indifferent to those. He identifies with you in every way except that he doesn't share in the fault of sin. That he did not step into it. He understands the pressure and the pain. He understands the agony, as is clear in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he resists. But because he understands all that pressure, because he understands the power, because he understands the weakness that you share in, Jesus is able to come to your aid. And he comes as a faithful and a merciful high priest. He comes as the one who takes away our sin, propitiates those sins, and he also comes as the one who can help you in the present. And so we turn to him. The one who's not ashamed to call us brothers, we turn to him and say, Jesus, I need help. I'm dependent. I'm weak. I'm not sufficient. But you, the heir of all things, the king of all creation, to whom everything will be subject, the one who will remove sin completely from God's creation and raise the creation to all the glory that was intended for it, you, that great author and founder of our faith, can help me. That's the way we approach him. That's who he is for us. This is the pioneer of salvation. This is the one who's done everything on our behalf. His grace has an invincible quality. And so trust him and allow that great power of grace to draw you away from all the drift that can happen. This is the only thing that can arrest the church. This is the only thing that keeps the church from being without Christ. And so let's hold fast to him. Let's pray. We thank you for the glorious vision that we have of Jesus and all that he is for us. He is the great heir of all things. Everything has been subjected to him. And we await that great final day when everything will be fully and finally subjected to him. And the creation cleansed and renewed and everything reconciled to you. We ask that you would help us, remind us of these great, wonderful benefits. That our Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. That he's not ashamed to call us his sisters. That he has done everything on our behalf that he atones for our sins, that he helps us in our weakness. And so we look to you, Lord Jesus, this morning. We ask for your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.